Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger. Today on Better Off, we're talking with retired Admiral William H. McRaven, Bill McRaven. He's got a new book out, and he has really inspired thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people with advice like this. If you can't make your bed, if you can't make those hospital corners right, if you don't know how to put your you know wool blanket at the foot of the bed, if you can't take the time to make your bed correctly, how will you ever be a good SEAL running a, an important mission? So learn to do the little things right, and then that'll help you do the big things right. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast, sponsored by Betterment, the smarter way to invest your money. This is the show where we provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and life. Today, we're emphasizing life. That's because we were so fortunate. Mark landed a phenomenal interview with retired Admiral William H. McRaven. Now, this is the guy who is the architect and the person who implemented the raid to capture Osama bin Laden. What what a weird coincidence. He walks into the studio and it was just hours after the U.S. had launched airstrikes against Syria. So we were able to talk to him about that. We talked to him about his career. But more importantly, we focused on the book that he's just written, Make Your Bed, Little Things That Can Change Your Life and Maybe the World. He's got fundamental life lessons that resonate with all of us. So let's get into it right now. Here's our interview with Bill McRaven. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Okay, this is a first for the Better Off podcast. We have Admiral William H. McRaven. He is U.S. Navy retired, the author of Make Your Bed, Little Things That Can Change Your Life and Maybe the World. And he told me before we went on the air that I'm allowed to call him Bill because I would never Please do. I would never do that before. You can call <laughs> me Jill. So it is the Bill and Jill show. Sounds good. Essentially. Uh, okay. This is going to be goofy because you are here and you're talking really amazing 10 steps that really will resonate with everybody listening, no matter who you are and what you do. But before we start the show, because this is sort of a money show, I like to ask a question for you. And we start it with, what is the best financial or career decision you ever made in your life? Marrying my wife. Nice. His wife is here, ladies and gentlemen. She's giving a thumbs up. And uh, yeah, she was good. She kept you on the straight and she narrow. She kept me on the straight and narrow. And, uh, and, you know, when you go through those rough moments in your life, uh, it's great to have uh, somebody like that to help you through them. So you were in the armed forces for 37 years right. and a Navy SEAL, four star admiral. How many of those are there? Uh, not a lot. Yeah. Well, a I'm lot. thinking a few. Uh, not not that many. Your final assignment was as commander of all U.S. Special Operations Forces, and you are now the chancellor of the University of Texas system, which is pretty amazing. Hook them horns. Hook them horns. And he <laughs> just showed me how to do it correctly. Well, that's our flagship. Up. I but like the, that. the system has got uh, 14 institutions, and uh, and they're all great. All right. You're talking to us today. We are recording this on the day uh, after the evening when the United States launched airstrikes against Syria. And you you were in a similar situation, say, with President Obama. Sure. Describe just a little bit about having to, to present the president with options. Will he then say, Bill, 
What do you think? Or, uh, or do you immediately say, here are your five options. This is what I think you should no, do. No, no. Uh, at least with President Obama, and I, I have not uh, met uh, President Trump, so I can't speak to President Trump. But I'm sure the process is pretty much the same. The military leaders will come in and they will provide options. Now, if the president says, what is your, you know, your number one option, then they're certainly prepared to provide that. But invariably, there's a dialogue, as there was uh, with President Obama during the, the bin Laden raid. And uh, I can tell you the president, uh, President Obama, asked a lot of good questions, hard questions, uh, you know, compelling and probing questions. And my guess is uh, President Trump did the same thing. He wanted to know what are the risks involved, uh, what are our chances of success. I mean, these are kind of natural questions that the president will ask the military leaders. So when President Obama asked some of those hard questions, right. give me an example of some of the, like, what would he have asked? Well, uh, the president always wants to know the risk, uh, the risk to the force. Right. Uh, and I'm sure the same thing uh, was asked uh, from President Trump to Secretary Mattis. But in the case of the bin Laden raid, uh, President Obama wanted to understand, okay, if, if I agree to this raid, then uh, how much risk will be, what is the, the threat to your men on the ground? Uh, and how are you going mitigate, to mitigate that risk? And so this is part of the plan that any military commander has to bring to a president is, you know, force protection, get the mission done, make sure you're protecting the force as best you can, explain the risks to the president of the United States. Is there ever a time where the president asked you a question and it made you rethink your position? Uh, in the case of the bin Laden yeah. raid, uh, yes. I mean, uh, in, in terms of tightening up the planning on the mission, uh, again, I gave the president uh, kind of a broad option. Look, we'll, we'll do a helicopter raid. Uh, we'll get on the ground. But if we encounter the Pakistanis, we have this option, this option, or this option. And so the president and, and, uh, and myself and, and a number of members of the national security team talked through those and helped refine the plan. And, and my guess is, again, with President Trump, uh, he had a discussion with his military leaders and, uh, and potentially, you know, tightened up the plan a little bit. Was the bin Laden raid, which obviously it went in your direction, did you have apprehension about it? No, never. Really? How come? No, because I, I knew what my forces were capable of doing. This was not a terribly complex mission. Uh, it was a long helicopter ride, about 162 miles from Afghanistan into Abbottabad, Pakistan. Uh, but I knew the SEALs were you know, highly trained. They were all combat veterans. The helicopter pilots were all combat veterans. Uh, we had uh, you know, good overhead surveillance. Uh, we had appropriate packages in the event they got into trouble. So we had a plan A, a plan B, a plan C, and a plan D. Uh, and I was very confident that uh, we could carry out any one of those uh, if we needed to. So, uh, so no, I, I wasn't uh, – I mean, again, you're always worried about the safety of your troops. Uh, they're, they're your men in this case, and I wanted them all to come back safely, but we also wanted to accomplish the mission. I was confident we could do both. And you did it. And we were, we were fortunate uh, we did it. The guys did it. The guys did it. That's yeah. pretty great. I, I don't know why, but, like, I always think that you have to be afraid in these various missions. What made you afraid along the way? Yeah, I think, you know uh, – you have to be a little bit scared uh, because that's kind of what keeps uh, keeps you on edge and, and keeps you looking for uh, potential uh, problem areas. You know, where are you going to get ambushed? Uh, how's the helicopter going to get from point A to point B? Uh, if you're not scared going into these missions, then you, you probably haven't been on them before. Um, I mean, you ought to have a little bit of heightened sense of anxiety. And I think every operator does. But uh, the flip side of that is you're very well trained. 
and and you recognize that your training and the support you have from the other members of uh, your team or the military are going to be there to help you out. So, you know, whatever that apprehension is, uh, I think, again, you can reduce some of that uh, concern by realizing you've got great teammates. So now to kind of shift gears. In okay. 2014, 14. you're delivering a commencement speech at the University of Texas, right? Right. And... First of all, how did that come about? Who who asked you to do that? Well, the president uh, of the university, Bill Powers, uh, asked me uh, to come do the commencement speech at my alma mater, uh, the University of Texas at Austin, and uh, and I was thrilled to have the opportunity to do it. Uh, and it, uh, it it turned out to be just a you know fantastic night in Austin in May, you know eight thousand students and about uh, twenty thousand of their parents and best friends. Uh, it was a great evening. And from that commencement speech comes this slim, elegant, and really terrific book called Make Your Bed. Let's start with why you wanted to turn... First of all, by the way, everyone go and check out the speech, but what made you want to turn into a book? You know, every day, uh, literally every single day since the speech, Saturdays and Sundays included, somebody comes up to me and says, I make my bed, or, you know, I don't ring the bell, or I don't back down from the sharks. Um, But after they tell me that, then they always ask me, what was it that inspired you? You know, tell me about your experience as a sugar cookie. Tell me about uh, how you, you know, didn't back down. Or who were the people that inspired you? And, you know, for several years, I, I was just busy, didn't have time to do it, and finally had an opportunity to, it's a small gift book, uh, but I think it has broad appeal. Uh, this is not just a book for commencement. I I think it's a book for anybody that goes through life that has to deal with with failures, that has um, you know great dark moments in life that they have to overcome. Um, so the book was really about uh, people that inspired me. Let's just start with uh, the number one, which is the title of the book, Make Your Bed. Why right. is making your bed so important? Well, at least uh, when I was being raised, my father was an Air Force officer and my, uh, my mother was a school teacher in Texas. And uh, and my mother ensured, more so than my father, that I made my bed every day. But as a young kid, you don't really understand why, other than your mom wanted you to make your bed. When I got to SEAL training, uh, it was something that the SEAL instructors came in and inspected every day. And I didn't really understand it at first. Look, we're, we're here to be, you know, real SEAL warriors. Why are we worried about making our bed? And uh, And then all of a sudden, you know, you have this epiphany, which is... They recognize that it was kind of the first task of the day. And, uh, and if you start off your day right by taking a little pride and making your bed, it's a simple task. And if you do it well, then other tasks will come, and then you'll complete the next task. And, and so it's kind of the first rung on the ladder in the course of your day. But the other thing about making your bed is it shows that if you do the little things well, then maybe you can do the, the bigger things well. And the SEAL instructors would make sure if you can't make your bed, if you can't make those hospital corners right, if you don't know how to put your you know, wool blanket at the foot of the bed, if you can't take the time to make your bed correctly, how will you ever be a good SEAL running a, an important mission? So learn to do the little things right, and then that'll help you do the big things right. So one of the other pieces of this, and as you go through and you give the, the little things that can change your life, you do talk about um, making sure that you have good teammates and and find someone to help you paddle. So in, in the book also, you give some great examples in your own life. But I'm just wondering, like, in your not just career, but in your life, 
Talk a little bit about the reliance on others, that team-based approach, because I do feel a tiny bit like sometimes that's lost in this current culture where everyone's sort of sitting alone at a screen, feeling disconnected. How do those connections really foster success? Well, I talked a a little bit about it in the speech, and then I kind of cull it out a little bit in the book. Uh, But when you go through SEAL training, you're giving what we refer to as an inflatable boat small. It's uh, about an 8 to 10 foot little raft, rubber raft, and you carry it everywhere you go. And the purpose of carrying the raft, it's a seven-man boat crew, uh, but the purpose of, of carrying it isn't just to carry the boat. It's to recognize that if you're going to get the boat from point A to point B, everybody has to work together as a team. And I don't care whether you're the officer or the junior enlisted guy. If you don't paddle the way you're supposed to paddle, if you don't, you know, stroke hard, if, if everybody doesn't dig in, then the boat won't get to where it needs to get to. And and so the recognition as you go through SEAL training that, you know, you better be a good teammate first. We're called the SEAL teams for a reason. And in fact, when you meet another guy in the SEAL teams, you say, hey, are you in the teams? And so mm-hmm. this concept of being a team, everybody having a role to play for you to be successful is important. Um, and then in the book, I talk about the fact that uh, you know, I had a parachute accident uh, back in, in 2001. Up to that point in my career, um, you know, I, I thought, uh, like a lot of SEALs, that maybe I was a little invincible. I'd, been, uh, mm-hmm. I'd had some life-threatening situations uh, in the air, uh, underwater, and other places, and I'd always managed to get out of it, but not this time. And so I got pretty banged up in, uh, in a, a free-fall parachute jump. And frankly, I thought my career was over. Uh, I was banged up that badly. But, but fortunately, uh, I had a lot of folks, uh, my wife in particular, but my boss, uh, Admiral Eric Olson, friends came by to see me, uh, you know, wished me well, helped me with my therapy, uh, my physical therapy. Uh, and I would never be where I am today were it not for the fact that everybody came together to help me through that tough event in my life. That life's not fair is something that seems to have quite a bit of resonance in a, in your world because unfair things happen all um, the time. You bet. And how do you get through those unfair things? Yeah, you know, again, uh, when we were going through training, uh, the um, there were a lot of folks that felt, uh, you know, if they were the best runner that day, then they would be rewarded for that. Uh, if they had the best uniform, they would be rewarded for that. There was this sense of, if I perform well, everything's going to fall into place. But it didn't. Right. And this concept of being a sugar cookie, as I refer to in, in the chapter, uh, a sugar cookie was you, an instructor would just arbitrarily say, uh, you know, McRaven, hit the surf. You had to hit the surf, uh, you know, get, get all wet, then roll around in the sand. And so you're covered head to toe in, in sand. And, you know, there, there was a time when you said, why? I, you know, I, my uniform looked good. Everything was great. Mm-hmm. I should be rewarded for that. And the point was... Sorry, life isn't fair. You're, you're not always going to be rewarded for things. And so this understanding as you go through life that, uh, you know, uh, life isn't fair. You have to get over it. And you can't spend your time, you know, blaming your parents or br- blaming your circumstances or blaming your bosses. Life's not fair. Um, but if you, if you press on, if you accept the fact that every once in a while things are going to just go, you know, not go your way, Get over it and move on. 
Does that mean, though, as as a boss, because you're sure. a boss of a lot of people, when somewhat bad things, do you, are, you, are you hardened to that? In other words, I don't know, like I, I'm feeling like in the military, that's a lesson. Like, of course, you have to move on. Like, we have a mission here. But in an organization like, you know, I'm working at CBS and like, oh, a story gets killed. Life's not fair. Move on. And, you know, like you've just spent hours and hours right. doing this. And it is true. But do you get to sit on your pity pot for like five minutes? Yeah, probably every, everybody does for a few minutes. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that's that's just human nature. Uh, but the point is, don't sit on it for too long. Yeah. Uh, like I said, uh, sometimes you, you bust your tail and things just don't work out well. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. We'll get back to my interview with Bill McRaven in just a minute. You know, I, that struck me what he just said. Sometimes you bust your tail. And it just doesn't turn out so well. And sometimes we are our own worst enemies. Sometimes we create self-inflicted wounds with our own plans. And maybe that's what you're doing with your money right now. Maybe you're trying to manage your money. Maybe you're trying to outsmart the market. Maybe you're trying to time the market. Maybe you're not putting enough money away for retirement. So many things that are driving you nutty. What can you do? Well, our sponsor, Betterment, believes that they've got the answer. Betterment has technology that helps you plan for the future and manage your investments intelligently with special attention paid to lowering fees and minimizing taxes. And Betterment does a lot of the things that maybe you wouldn't do for yourself. They've got a globally diversified portfolio. They'll automatically rebalance their tax-efficient features for your non-retirement accounts, award-winning customer service, and by the way, yes, a fiduciary. How important in light of the fact that the fiduciary rule was supposed to go into effect on April 10th and now it hasn't. So, you know, you're working with a company that can put your best interest at heart. For those of you who may have more complex finances or just want someone to talk to, Betterment offers two additional service plans that give you access to a team of CFP professionals and licensed financial experts. You know, I love that CFP designation. I'm one myself. Mark's studying for his. You don't have to waste your time and money planning for the future. Sign up through our podcast link and you can get one month managed for free. Visit Betterment.com slash better off for the offer and more information. And now back to my interview with Bill McRaven. Can you talk a little bit about failure? Because I never associate military and failure as, you know, like where how you come through that, because I feel like sometimes failure is it's, you know, can result in the loss of life and injury. And like, so how do you come on the other side of that? That's a much more difficult thing than saying, oh, well, life's unfair. Failure is big deal. Failure is big deal, particularly in a combat situation. Uh, And, you know, fortunately, by the time. And I was in combat after 9-11. I was a pretty seasoned SEAL officer. I'd been in about 26 years. And, and I've had a, I'd had a number of failures, not, not combat-related, but, uh, you know, a number of failures in my career. And, you know, you do the best to show that uh, you're better than your failure. But when it comes to combat, uh, your failures can, in fact, result in, in the deaths of uh, civilians, unfortunately, and, and some of your soldiers. Um, but... But what you have to realize is you have to learn from your mistakes. You know, you can't sit on your pity pot too long. Uh, You have to say, what did I learn from that? How are we going to do better next time? But you have to be prepared to make the next tough decision as a combat leader. Mm. And, uh, And I think the difference between a great combat leader and a good combat leader is the great ones uh, overcome failure as quickly as possible. They learn from it, and then they make the next tough decision. Because if you're not prepared to make the next tough decision, 
then you're going to lose more young men and women. And so that's the important thing to recognize in combat. You just talked about the difference between good and great. So who inspired you in your career? Oh, a lot of people uh, inspire me uh, in my career. But I will tell you, invariably, uh, probably not uh, who people think. The, The kids that inspired me were the the young soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines I, I met, the ones that had families uh, with kids. And you'd watch these uh, you know, young soldiers uh, go overseas and come back, and then you know, eight months later they're back overseas again. And they do it year after year after year, and the wife stays at home and takes care of the kids, uh, or the husband stays at home in some cases and takes care of the kids as the wife is forward. Um, I mean, these are the the men and women that I think are truly inspiring. And, and they don't, you know, nobody writes books about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're not going to have any monuments uh, built to them, but they are, you know, the, the American soldier. They're what's really inspiring. You talk about rising to the occasion, and I feel like you're in this dangerous place and you're trained in a certain way. You are going to rise to the occasion. But how do civilians rise to the occasion in your lives? How do you see that playing out? Yeah, you know, sometimes I think it's just something deep, deep inside that comes up when a dark moment occurs. I don't know that you can plan for it. I don't know that you can prepare for it. I don't know that even the the soldiers I've met fully prepare for it. You know, when you lose a loved one, I don't care whether you lose them on the battlefield or you lose them in a car accident or they die of cancer, Um you know, you find out really who you are in those dark moments. And I think we all have it inside us. And and the point of the book is, you know, you don't have to be a, a superhero to rise to the occasion. Um, but, you know, dig deep. It's in there. Um, and the people around you are going to need you to rise to that occasion when bad things happen. Uh, so, you know, th- this is more of of a hope that people that read the book will realize that they have it within themselves uh, to be this person when difficult things happen. In your career, as you look back, were you able to identify people who you said, that guy, that woman, that's a leader? Absolutely. Did, easily? Pretty easily. Yeah. And what are some of those attributes that would make you poised to be a leader? Yeah, they are generally people persons. You know, they uh, they understand how to build a team, as we, we talked about. Uh, they recognize that it's not about them. They are kind of a, a servant leader. I mean, I think the great leaders are servant leaders. Um, you know, I, I love this saying from, from Pope Francis that, you know, uh, a shepherd should smell like his sheep. And I, I think, you know, we have learned that in the military that great leaders are the ones that are out with the troops. And I don't care whether you're a non-commissioned officer, uh, you know, to be a great leader, You've got to be out. You've got to suffer the hardships. You have to you have to lead from the front, as we say. Sometimes leading from the front is literally jumping out of the airplane first. Sometimes leading from the front is being the last in the chow line to get chow. Um, but leading from the front means setting the example and, and doing the difficult things. You don't have to be the best at everything. In fact, great leaders are rarely the best at everything. But they've got to respect the people that work for them. Uh, they've, got to, they've got to be able to build the team around them. And and you can see that pretty quickly. I mean, there are some folks that are a little too full of themselves, that uh, think they always have the right plan, uh, that they're the smartest man or woman in the room. Uh, those people you have to be a little bit careful of. Now, every once in a while, they turn out to be great leaders as well. But I tell you, more times than not, 
It's that man or woman who knows how to build a team, who is the servant leader, who respects the people that work for them, uh, and who sets the example and does things that are moral, legal, and ethical. When you look at, say, corporate America now, and you maybe read stories in the papers about this CEO does this or this malfeasance of that, uh, I, I can only imagine that somebody like you, a true leader who's selfless in many ways, you know, that that really must pain you in some ways to, to, to read stories or hear things like that. Well, you know, we're not perfect in the military. Trust me, we have uh, officers and enlisted uh, men and women that uh, don't always do the right thing. But I think as an organization, we work hard to instill the right values in people. And, and I think most of uh, the men and women I've worked uh, with in the military adhere to those values. But, you know, again, I have one litmus test for every decision we make. And as I said, you have to do things that are moral, legal, and ethical. And if your decision, you know, you know, passes that litmus test, then it's probably a good decision. And most leaders know when things aren't moral, legal, or ethical. It's not always easy to be good, though. Um, you know, the circumstances that swirl around you sometimes where not, nobody's perfect. Uh, and again, we're going to make mistakes. And sometimes as hard as you try to be moral, legal, and ethical, it doesn't work out. And, you, you know, you're, we talk about your integrity being the most important thing, but, but frankly, you're the only one that can lose your integrity. And it happens sometimes. Um, again, that's, that's a time when you just have to say, look, I made a mistake. Uh, I'm, I'm going to figure out how to do better next time and, and move on. Now that you are out of the military and in academia, which is a whole nother universe. I love it. it is, really? Absolutely. Yeah, these people whining, oh, no, I didn't get no, enough no. money to do my thing. No, no. I, I want tenure. Come on. How has the transition been? Transition's been great. Uh, you know, I'm used to running a large organization. So in my role as the chancellor of the University of Texas system, I'm, I'm the CEO over these 14 institutions. And we have eight academic institutions and then, then six uh, health-related institutions. And we've got six medical schools. Uh, but I got to tell you, the, the best thing about the job is looking at these, you know, first in family to go to college. Uh, we have a large Hispanic population in Texas and, uh, and down at uh, UT Rio Grande Valley and, and University of Texas El Paso and UT San Antonio. You see these kids that are the first in their family ever to go to school. And you realize they have just changed the entire trajectory of their family forever. Because, you know, what statistics show is if you go to college, chances are very high. Your kids are going to go to college and their kids are going to go to college. And everything about going to college you know, frankly, makes you a better person. Uh, I mean, statistically speaking, you know, not only do you make more money, but you're less likely to be racist and bigoted, and you're you're going to be healthier. I mean, everything about spending time on a college campus is actually good for human beings. Uh, so the fact that you can bring, a, you know, a young man or woman in, put them in college, and then I've seen these that are first in their family to go to medical school, and let me tell you, there's nothing more inspiring. And when it comes to the faculty, you know, the faculty are often maligned. i got to tell you, I love the faculty. Uh, they are bright. Uh, they are committed to their students. Anybody that thinks that these, the faculty kind of, you know, sit around and just whine about uh, tenure uh, hadn't been around the faculty I've been around. These are remarkable uh, men and women that are working hard because they want to see their students perform. They want to see their students get out of school on time, get a job, be successful, that's why they came into you know, to the life of uh, being a faculty member. Uh, last question. 
uh, the beginning of the show, you said uh, the best career, money, probably life decision was marrying your wife. Absolutely. All right, what was the worst? <laughs> well, I don't know. I think you'd have to string them together. Give me one. Uh, uh, you know, when we uh, got to California very early on, married couple, um, and uh, somebody said, hey, you need to invest in California real estate. Mm. Well, we'd come from Texas. You know, I remember my parents in, uh, in 1967 paid $33,000 for their home in Texas, and it was a, a nice little ranch. I get to Coronado, California, and I remember a chief petty officer who on the sideline was a real estate uh, broker, and he said, you know, Ensign, you need to buy this house. And, of course, it was a small home in Coronado, and he said, uh, you know, it's going to cost $55,000. And I said, are you out of your mind? That house is now worth about $2.5 million. Well, um, <laughs> you know, I feel like that is actually one of the most popular responses to that question. Yeah. People say it's the, the real estate I didn't buy. Uh, William H. McRaven, also known as Bill, right. thank you so much for joining us. It's been terrific and, and uh, really eye-opening. And good luck. Make your bed. Little things that can change your life and maybe the world. Hey, this is what I would do if I were you. I would go buy about 20 of these books and give them all out as graduation gifts because it's really, it's that good and it is terrific. And you know what I'm going to make him do? I'm going to make him sign the book for me. I've never done that yet, but I'm going to make him do it. I'm looking at your wife and she's laughing at me. <laughs> Thanks again. Thanks very much. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Okay, it's time for our favorite part of the Better Off podcast. It is the Caller of the Week. Today, we're going to talk to Meg, who's on the line from California. Hi, Meg. Welcome to Better Off. What can I do for you? Hey, Jill. Thanks for having me on the show today. Um, I am calling you because I have always had a dream of being a freelance writer and living the expat lifestyle. And I think it's time to start living the dream in the next six months or so. Yes, and I love like, these. I love <laughs> these so much. Because first of all, I'm a voyeur. That's, by the way, half the reason why I love these calls so much. I like to get inside your life. Um, so a freelance writer, have you been a writer previously or is this something brand new? Are you like an engineer and you're like, no, I just want to write? <laughs> I definitely use writing a lot in my career, and I'm a strong writer, but this will definitely be my first time writing exclusively for income. Fabulous. Okay. So tell me a little bit about um, yourself right now. Are you uh, coupled? Are you single? What's going on for you? I'm single, and probably as part of the transition, I anticipate moving in with my significant other in part to, you know, reduce my cost okay. during that transition. But when you say, uh, you know, expat, freelance, right, you mean move in here in the States or move in somewhere else? Um, move in here in the States initially, but definitely with an eye toward um, traveling internationally once I get my feet under me. Fantastic. Um, how old are you? I'm 32. Oh, my God. This is the time to do it, baby. No kids. <laughs> do you have any dogs? I mean, is that is this going to be okay? Nope. All right. Okay. So um, how about telling me a little bit about the money you have saved? Because you, you sound like you've been working for, you know, whatever, 10 or 12 years. So what have you done in terms of savings so far? So I've actually only been working for a few years. I spent quite a bit of time in grad school. Um, but my current position is relatively lucrative for my field, and I've been really focused on saving. Mm -hmm. So I have about $100,000 in various accounts. Um, I max out my traditional 403B through work, so I have about $50,000 there. Um, I'm actually a big Betterment user, and 
So I have um, a safety net of about 12K with them and then a Roth IRA maxed out in 2016 and it'll be maxed out relatively soon for 2017. Great. 12,000 you said was like sort of like your safety net emergency reserve, right? Yes. Okay, got it. And then I have about 27K in stocks and mutual funds. Okay. When you look at your expenses going forward, um, shacking up with the, the honey, that will save you some money. But what do you think you have to have available to you on a monthly basis to support yourself? I figure about $1,000 a month living with him to support myself. Okay. And um, in your mind, I know that this is a new thing, but do you think you can you can earn that much? Or what's your sense? Um, I, I guess I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't think I could earn that much. But, um, you know, I, I feel like if I were to fail at this, I could always come back into a more traditional job market. So I guess I feel like I got to try it one way or the other. Okay. So here's my advice to you. I think that... Um, when people make these kinds of decisions, it's great that you're calling first because there's a little bit of prep that I think is really important. And that is that for all intents and purposes, I would like you to have not just the $12,000 you have in that safety net right now. I'd like that to be 12 plus another 12, meaning your $12,000 for a safety net, but then another 12000 to put a year of your expenses away. Now, the lucky thing for you, you have it. You have, you said you had $27,000 in stocks, right? Just in a, a basic account with some stuff in it. What What is the nature of those holdings? Do you have like one big stock? Is it company stock? What's in there? Um, so it's managed by Betterment. And frankly, I haven't dug down in to see exactly what they use. But um, it's just a, a kind of a long-term investment account. One of the things that I would suggest is that I would have some of that money freed up. And here's the good news. Let's say that you do this this year, 2017, right? Mm -hmm. Well, if you're going to sell some of those assets and they're going to be a gain, your tax bracket's going down big time this year. Right. So this is the year to do it. So what I would like you to do is to check out what exactly you have in your non-retirement account And then determine if you can cherry pick some of these assets. Maybe you have some winners, some you have some losers. But I would prefer that in addition to the 12,000 bucks that you already have in your safety net, that you put away one year of your living expenses and add it to that safety net. I hope you don't need it. I hope you call me back and say, that was the worst thing you ever told me to do because the market kept going up and I shouldn't have done that. I hope that's what happens. I hope you make $5,000 a month being a freelance writer. But just in case, I think it's good to have a little bit of extra kish on the side, okay? Great. Thank you so much, Jill. Um, You are not crazy to do this, by the way, and I applaud you. It takes a lot of guts to do it. So if not now, when? Good luck. And uh, Meg, give us a call back and uh, send us your writing. Tell us what we where we can read you. We'll, we'll help hype you up, okay? Absolutely. Thanks uh, again, Jill. Take care. Thanks so much to Admiral McRaven for coming on the program. Boy, he was fantastic. Go check out his entire University of Texas speech. It was inspiring. Don't forget, there's a new episode of the Better Off podcast every Thursday. You can subscribe via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you have any questions or suggestions, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Jill on Money. That's at Jill on Money. Just use the hashtag better off. You can also reach me via email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. That's ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. And if you wouldn't mind, please leave us a review or a rating in iTunes. It really will help us out. Better Off is sponsored by Betterment. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Delercio produces. I'm Jill Schlesinger. See you next week.